0: From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Makowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are extremely grateful to have the opportunity to talk with Professor Halpern Meekin from the UW-Madison School of Human Ecology to talk about issues surrounding poverty and the pandemic. We won't be able to cover all of the sprawling topics under these umbrellas, but we will do our best. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started and what your research and teaching interests are?
1: Sure. I do research and I teach about how families experience and are affected by economic challenges and also about their experiences with social and welfare policies. Yeah, you know, so many of the issues that we have been examining long before the pandemic are really under the spotlight right now. So the pandemic has really amplified a lot of issues around racial and ethnic inequities, socioeconomic inequities around work, health, financial resources, around gender inequities and household and child care labor, and also the ways that government action and policy or the lack thereof can play a big role in shaping these experiences and outcomes for families and individuals.
0: So what are you and your colleagues writing and speaking about in the context of the pandemic?
1: Well, I have a wide variety of colleagues who do a wide variety of fascinating research, so I don't think I can do justice to all of it. But, you know, I have colleagues who focus on issues around parenting and around the stresses that parents may be experiencing right now as many try to juggle work and at home and parenting at the same time or as they try to juggle financial losses in parenting. I have colleagues who study um, the experiences of individuals with disabilities and their families and the ways that they might be experiencing this pandemic as they lose or have to change the manner of their access to support services and those sorts of things. So lots of fascinating ways that we Um, might be missing how different people are experiencing this pandemic in in different ways.
0: From the start of the pandemic, the trade-off between public health and the economic impact of stay-at-home orders has been at the epicenter of public and political discourse. As someone who studies this both in an academic sense, but also works to like engage in real policy that impacts real people who are struggling right now, can you share with us your take on how the media has covered issues of, like, economics and economy versus public health?
1: So I'm not a media analyst, so I, I don't know how much I can say about the job the media is doing. I can say that we know that some families are facing really difficult tradeoffs right now. Between their accessing economic resources and staying healthy. So as as economies open up and people feel um, required to go back to work, they face that sort of trade off and decision. There, um, this is particularly the case for people who may be working in service jobs that can't be done remotely, often are not well paid, and um, you know offer offer few options for for power and protection, um, and. We also have to keep in mind that a lot of people um, might be accessing unemployment insurance right now, but many can't. And so the the CARES Act that temporarily expanded unemployment coverage for some, um, some of those expansions are are ending this month, and um, it also doesn't cover everyone. And so we need to keep in mind some of the trade-offs people might be making between Um, having to work to earn an income and the costs to their health.
0: Would you say that there has been more of a focus and emphasis on economic things surrounding this pandemic and less of a focus on like, what are we doing to help uh, those people who are living in poverty during this?
1: I think we're hearing a focus on there are dire economic consequences for shutting down and a focus on their dire, e- their dire health consequences of the pandemic. But actually reconciling those two and thinking through what they mean together and whether and how they should be in tension with each other is something that I think can be hard to wrestle with. It doesn't make for a great headline. So we have had a lot of focus on unemployment because those are the numbers the federal government publishes so we've looked at job losses and things like that that ignores people who were working outside formal employment. It misses um, a a wide variety of people who are going to be experiencing economic repercussions even if it's not their own job loss and it also ignores the role of assets as opposed to earned income in how households are doing. So we know that before the pandemic, a lot of American households, even those who are well above the poverty line, had really limited emergency savings and so this means we went into this crisis with many families and households having little cushion to cope with the financial challenges that are being presented, and our focus on whether or not businesses are open and what unemployment rates are doesn't fully address these issues around around assets and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the unemployment rate, and there there are other ways of uh, looking at poverty in the United States, can you outline for us in kind of broad terms of what uh, impact the virus is having on some of these poverty indicators?
1: So there are a bunch of different ways we can look at poverty and hardship. So we have the official poverty line that the federal government uses, which says if a person has less than $12,760 in earnings for a year then they're considered poor. So for a family of four, that's around $26,000 in earnings for the year. So that's our official poverty line. Many researchers use something called the supplemental poverty measure that tries to take a more nuanced approach to measuring poverty than our official poverty line does. So the supplemental poverty measure takes into account an array of things that the official poverty threshold doesn't. So it takes into account differences in cost of living based on your location, um, since it's a lot more expensive to live in New York City than, let's say, in rural Kansas, it takes into account differences in costs of living based on age. We know that older adults to have, tend to have much higher medical costs, families with young children have higher childcare costs, for example. The supplemental poverty measure also takes into account what families gain and lose through paying taxes and what they get from um, public assistance programs. And the official poverty line doesn't look at those things. So researchers often try to look um, at measures using the supplemental poverty measure since it's a uh, more nuanced and we hope more accurate way of assessing people's poverty. And using that supplemental poverty measure some researchers from the Center for Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University have estimated that in the absence of support from the CARES Act, poverty rates would have actually spiked to their highest level since the Great Depression. So I think that underscores two things. One, it really shows us what a difference policy actions can make. And the other is it really shows us what a big financial crisis this is for so many families. So in the absence of the CARES Act providing these one-time stimulus checks and boosting weekly unemployment payments and expanding who's covered by unemployment assistance, we would be seeing a lot more families in a lot harsher circumstances right now. But all that said, when we look at some alternative measures so we move beyond looking at the poverty measures and we look at measures of hardship like material hardship for example we see that food insecurity rates people's concerns about you know having regular access to enough food have doubled we've probably all seen those photographs in Um, in newspapers of cars lined up one after the other waiting to go to food banks. And so I think this really serves as a reminder that we can get really focused on being above or below the poverty line but whether you're above or below you can still be experiencing material hardship and we're seeing that. Um, And then finally as we think about these ways of measuring poverty we need to keep in mind that poverty lines are based on annual income. And so that means we miss a lot of income fluctuations and therefore potentially financial struggles that families can face throughout the year. So even if the bottom line at the end of the year puts you above the poverty line, that doesn't mean you necessarily had enough to make ends meet every you know, every week and every month during that year.
0: Yeah, you mentioned like through all this, um, the importance of the CARES Act and how like monumental it was for keeping so many families afloat so far, what happens then when it, it runs out this month, parts of it?
1: Well, that's a great question, and we don't know. Yeah, we I guess we're, what... we're
0: about to find out. <laughs>
1: yeah, so right now we're waiting to see what happens once Congress comes back from its recess, you know, in, in a week and a half, and we'll see whether actions are taken and what those actions look like. So it's really a question mark right now. And, you know, that can be something of academic interest, but for families who are really dependent on that support right now, it's, um, you know, it feels very dire uh, about whether action is taken or whether their benefits are going to end in the next few weeks.
0: Yeah. What are some avenues that the federal government might take on, in the next month or two to help address some of these things?
1: In my mind, one thing that we're seeing is that the economic impact of the pandemic and the public health side of the pandemic really can't be treated as separate issues. So we know that one of the factors that's dragging on the economy, even among, you know, amid the push in many states to reopen, is that there's been limited spending among those with higher incomes. And from a public health perspective, that limited spending might actually be a good sign because we want people to be staying home and maintaining distance. And that is going to mean, you know, getting less of the services and experiences that people might usually spend money on. And so people aren't feeling safe to do that, even when their states do open their economies back up. And so what that really underlines for me is that until we adequately address public health risks from the pandemic, we may not be able to fully get the economy back on track because the two are so inextricably linked.
0: So the United States has had this safety net, and then we added to it with this CARES Act. And I know you said that uh, kind of comparatively, you might have some limited perspective, but um, kind of thinking like other countries that have created more and more stimulus in the forms of like, you know, money directly to uh, citizens. Do you foresee anything like that in the United States? Like, do you foresee any more stimulus checks coming to people's way?
1: So we have a more individualistic culture in the U.S. And that's reflected in our safety net. So from some perspectives, providing a safety net is in itself destructive to individual motivation and personal responsibility. And so that uh, perspective, which is relatively more dominant in the US than in many other countries, is going to shape the set of assistance programs that we have during normal times. And it's also going to shape people's reactions and willingness to engage in ongoing uh, assistance program expansions during during this period of time. So we've already seen that in response to a crisis people are more willing to sort of relax some of those concerns but they tighten back up really quickly. So for example we saw a lot of places um, institute eviction moratoriums in immediate response to the pandemic and those helped prevent many families from being evicted in the face of job loss or income loss due to the economy closing down but many places have already let those eviction moratoriums lapse and so we're seeing eviction rates rising even though we're still in the midst of this first wave of the pandemic and we also you know as we've talked about see expiring expansions to unemployment insurance this month even though we're really You know, experts are telling us still in the middle of this first wave of the pandemic. And so I think we sometimes see some of these more expansive programs put into place, but how long people feel comfortable letting them stay in place is part of the question.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned um, eviction moratoriums and everything. Um, Like I know here in Wisconsin, there is no nothing like that. And political subdivisions like cities, counties, municipalities, Um, It's actually illegal for them to create moratoriums like that. Are you or is it looking like um, there's going to be this huge housing crisis um, in the extremely near future as more and more families and individuals get evicted?
1: I think it's going to look different ways in different places, um, in part because, as you mentioned, there is variation from place to place in the willingness and ability to put in place rules to make housing more affordable um, or to put in place eviction moratoriums. There were more and less of a housing crisis in different places, um, and so that will also change um, people's immediate experiences around housing. We also know that from place to place, there are differences in the reach of affordable housing programs. So typically our affordable housing programs like public housing or Section 8 housing vouchers only reach a small minority of families who are eligible for them there are very long waiting lists in many places sometimes many years sometimes those lists are not not even open to join because they're so long that cities and towns close them and so in those places where that's um where that's the case there's just going to be um a, a lot less that families have to um to turn to when they're in need and so the um, issues around housing are going to be that much more pressing in those places where there were pre-existing problems before the pandemic.
0: Yeah, it seems like the pandemic has kind of exponentially heightened, or made, it made even more visible, all of the cracks in our policies like that. Right.
1: It, it sort of shows some of the some of the decisions and some of the ways in which we have inequities in our society and people's experiences of the pandemic even as we all share you know fears over illness the experiences of many other aspects and burdens of the pandemic are different
0: now kind of turning towards the healthcare system and health policy it's been the center of like extremely divisive debate in american politics for decades what are some strengths and weaknesses of the U.S. healthcare system in terms of addressing COVID-19?
1: So I'm not a health policy expert, so I think I can speak to some, some issues of that here. One, when it comes to health insurance, some of the people who are in the most dire financial circumstances are actually not in the most difficult situation when it comes to securing health insurance people whose earnings put them just above the cutoff from Medicaid eligibility, especially in states in which eligibility wasn't expanded through the Affordable Care Act, they can have the most difficulty getting insurance because they earn too much to get government subsidized Medicaid, but too little to comfortably purchase insurance on the market. And so again, you know, we wanna pay attention to people who are in poverty, but also remember that our poverty line in many ways is uh, not a great assessment of um, people above that line not having any need so we have that issue right that there are people who are sort of in the middle that for whom accessing quality health insurance is challenging and the other thing is that having insurance alone is not a guarantee of being able to access care or quality care So the federal government can and does set rules requiring a certain quality of insurance or in some cases relaxing those rules so people can find themselves insured and yet facing high medical bills or finding out that procedures that they might need are not covered. And the other aspect of our insurance system that I think the pandemic is really shedding light on is that we primarily have an employer provided health insurance model in the US. And in the situation that we have today with high and rising unemployment rates, the challenges of that system are put into stark relief because when people lose their jobs, they're not just losing their income, they're losing their health insurance coverage too. And so while the Affordable Care Act does allow those people to seek coverage on its marketplace after a job loss, we, again, come to issues around the disruptions that can come with these changes, like needing to change healthcare providers. And, you know, you're dealing with job loss, and now you have to deal with finding insurance um, at at the same time as well. So I think we, we have a system where we have seen expansion of coverage from prior to the Affordable Care Act, but that doesn't mean the issues that we face around health insurance have been resolved.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting you bring up the impact of employer-tied healthcare because obviously that has been such a huge part of, or it was such a huge part of the um, Democratic primary game all this spring. Um, but yeah, that could honestly be a whole different podcast, so I want to ask you about that. <laughs> Moving on, what do you think the short and long impact of covid will be on public policy in the United States. Do you think we'll be more inclined to build a healthcare system more accessible to people living in poverty, a stronger social safety net?
1: I really feel like the story of how the pandemic is going to shape public policy in the US very much remains to be written. So we don't know what Congress is going to do later this month when it returns from its recess in terms of extending the protections we talked about. We don't know what the outcome of the next presidential election will be. We don't know what the next administration, whether that's a Trump administration or a Biden administration, will do in response to these issues that are certainly going to be ongoing um, in January 2021 when the next administration is sworn in. So I think there are so many questions um, on the political side of things that are unknowns that it's really hard to project. And then there are also unknowns on the public health side of things. we don't know how quickly a vaccine or effective treatment will be developed. And all of those factors are going to be interacting with one another, I think, to shape the public attitudes and the policymaking possibilities going forward.
0: Yeah, calling that unwritten is a perfect way of putting it. I couldn't say it better myself, especially with how unpredictable this year has been.
1: I'm mm-hmm. sure the
0: next couple of months are going to continue to are going to continue that trend.
1: There is, you know, and I'm sure many folks uh, in the political science department over there are much better suited to answering these questions than I am. Um, But I I think there's a really big difference between public opinion and policy, depending on who's voting, and depending on the effects of the ways that uh, gerrymandering shapes electoral outcomes. So to the extent that public opinion does translate into um, electoral outcomes and policymaking, then we could potentially see a swing if the vulnerability that so many people have felt during this pandemic translates into greater empathy for other people who are financially vulnerable. Um, And to the extent that a push for... Uh, greater justice, social justice um, for people of color translates into a push to attend to the many aspects of policy that disproportionately economically disadvantage Black Americans and other people of color. So that could happen, but that's a lot of ifs, right? If people vote, if those votes are cast in such a geographic array that gerrymandering doesn't mean that um, those votes are uh, not translating into uh, electoral wins.
0: Kind of moving forward, if you were to give the federal or state government some kind of recommendation on policy moving forward, what would one of the first things that you would recommend?
1: So I think the First thing that I would recommend is I would want them to go talk to Pam Hurd and Don Moynihan who used to be on the faculty at UW-Madison and are now on the faculty at Georgetown who have done some great work around administrative burden, which means thinking about the extent to which bureaucracies are set up to function well and to help people get access to the service and benefits that they need. And so we've seen the ways that issues with administrative burden get in the way as the government tries to respond to a crisis. So we've seen across the country and in Wisconsin really long waits for many people when they apply for unemployment insurance. And the response from many of the people running those systems was to say, we're completely overrun. We've not had adequate funding. The system has not been updated for years and years. And now we're ex- expected to respond to this vast tidal wave of need. And we can't do that quickly because we were not set up in the first place to, to do that well. And so we have you know, hundreds of thousands of people in Wisconsin alone who've been waiting for months for unemployment benefits and in the meantime you know they are trying to scrape together money to make ends meet any way they can that could mean going into debt it could mean borrowing it could mean you know selling their possessions but if we don't address those sort of issues around administrative burden that can remain hidden when we're not in a time of crisis, then the next time we come to a crisis, we're going to be in the same situation again with a set of bureaucratic institutions that are not able to adequately respond to people's needs. And I think oftentimes those bureaucracies themselves are blamed for their failures when in fact, we make decisions about how those bureaucracies are set up and funded that shapes their ability to respond in times of crisis. And then I would say, you know, more broadly speaking, I think it's really up to voters to make their voices heard about the priorities they have. So, you know, I said earlier, a lot of the issues that we've seen during the pandemic have been ones that predated the pandemic. They were just put under a spotlight during this crisis. And so even once we have a vaccine, and even if it's widely used and effective, we're still going to have issues around the differences by race and ethnicity and immigration status and gender and socioeconomic status and more in access to economic opportunities and protections from economic pitfalls. And there are no silver bullets for dealing with any of these problems. There are, there are virtually none of our policies that don't affect these issues of inequity, from our tax policy to our environmental policy, from healthcare policy to infrastructure investments. So we can choose to take a perspective or not in all of these policy realms that recognizes and seeks to address these inequities. But those are choices that individual voters are going to make.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the concept of administrative burden. I took a class here through LaFault School with Tim meeting where um, all we talked about was administrative burden and red tape and bureaucracy. And I didn't realize until then how much of a toll it takes on people
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's a huge issue. And it's one that's not talked about publicly. um, And it's one that even, you know, within policy circles, doesn't get the sort of attention that I think it needs, because it really speaks to the human day to day on the ground experience of what it's like to try to access assistance.
0: Women and minorities in the United States are likely to be hit economically, hit more economically, given the job sectors that are most hard hit. Also the reality that even in middle and upper class families, research suggests it's women who sacrifice earning potential in terms of dividing up childcare and housework, especially in the pandemic where that is like exacerbated so much when kids are having to stay home. What is the effect in lower income communities as well where that is probably exacerbated tenfold?
1: So many families who have less money do so in part because they only have one earner. Um, and so that means that families are in an even more tenuous position, you know, than a two earner family when it comes to trying to survive a difficult time, because you have, you know, in a single family, parent family, for example, you have one person who's doing all the care work at home and doing all the income earning outside of the home. And the ability to do both of those well, you know, many parents accomplish during normal circumstances. But how you do those well in the middle of a pandemic, I think, is asking more of many people than is reasonable, right? It's, how do you, how do you do both those things well when, Each one by themselves may be a full-time job. So to the extent that low-income families are relying on one-income earner or to the extent that they are uh, single-parent families, there are going to be um, pressing issues there for them that uh, two-earner families may not face. Um, And then the other thing, I think, is, again, the issue we've been talking about all along, which is the way that so many issues uh, are, were pre existing before the pandemic. So the set of childcare options available to families, or the set of technology options to facilitate children's remote learning in families, the ability of uh, people working low wage jobs to make demands for safer working conditions. All of these things were issues before the pandemic, but I think have really been um, brought to light or emphasized by the pandemic
0: yeah, and what would you say the role of gender and race play into all this?
1: So we know that uh, single parent families are far more likely to be headed by women than men. And so to the extent that single parent families um face an increased demand from having to work and do childcare during the pandemic, that's going to be disproportionately borne by women. We know that women do a disproportionate amount of housework and care work um, during normal times and that even when um, in an opposite-sex couple family, even when men and women are dividing up child care, men are more likely to do the fun uh, playing stuff with kids and less likely to do the more drudging care um, stuff with kids, like changing diapers or things like that. So women, you know, that are going to experience that in an amplified way during the pandemic. We've seen a wide variety of ways in which the pandemic is disproportionately affecting people of color, um, particularly black and brown people, in terms of the health impacts of the pandemic itself. So people's likelihood of getting sick and getting very sick Um, is higher among people of color. And um, I think people are still trying to figure out why that's the case, although we have um, a lot of information and research that we take into informing those investigations, which again comes back to the disadvantages that people brought into this situation, which is Um, People of color are more likely to be economically disadvantaged by a system that is, you know, historically and presently not treating them equitably around, um, you know, job search and real estate holdings and asset holdings. And then when it comes to health, we know that um, people of color are subject to a lot of stresses that translate into physiological impacts on the body. That's called weathering. Um, And that can make it more likely that people develop um, a variety of inflammatory disorders because the stresses of being exposed to daily microaggressions and discrimination takes its toll. And so all of these various um, Historical and present inequities add up to people who were disadvantaged before um, disproportionately bearing the brunt of the pandemic today. There are discussions about whether those issues have shaped government response to the pandemic in terms of concerns about its spread, in terms of concerns about who's shouldering the cost of the work that's being done in homes. And so I think, you know, those questions remain to be answered.
0: Yeah, that hit the nail right on the head. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you and we really value all the information you
1: gave us. Thank you.
0: For more information regarding the podcast, please visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.